Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shinjo for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 299, Armageddon Game. into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Hairdo 1. And I'm Hairdo 2. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether it holds up today. This week, Armageddon Game, the least popular game in the Toys R Us wishbook. Oh, John, too soon. Fine, 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 fine. The least popular game in the Sears wish book. Whoa, way too soon. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Well, uh, it's not a popular game. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail... We would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Quick question. I'm hoping this will be in trivia. Um... Mm -hmm. How many players for Armageddon game? Uh, all of them, Ken. The answer is all of them. Fair enough. Today's episode of Armageddon Game, the story, is by Morgan Gendel. Well, here we are at the fourth of the four episodes of Star Trek that Morgan wrote. He contributed two to TNG, of course, The Inner Light and Starship Mine. And he got a credit on season one of DS9 for co-writing The Passenger with Robert Hewitt Wolf. The script gets credited to Morgan Gendel, Iris Stephen Bear, and James Crocker. Now, the story and the script went through a number of changes. Morgan originally saw it as a story for Dax, and Michael Piller wanted to ramp up the action of the episode. The next draft would have proved too expensive to shoot, so they scaled it down again. So it's a lot of Michael Piller's influence on what we see in the final show. This was directed by Wienrich Kolbe, another well-known name for us. He started back at Season 2 of TNG, and the most recent of his DS9 episodes that we discussed was Melora. Now, how about the guest stars? Well, the Talani scientist Nidrum is played by Larry Cedar. 
Larry is one of those constantly working character actors, and I'm glad to point out that his professional on-screen career kicks off with Gun on Ice Planet Zero, an awesome two-parter of the original Battlestar Galactica series. He's done a lot of guest and recurring work, often seen on Deadwood, and has some features under his belt, too, like Hollywoodland and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This is the first of three Trek appearances for him. We will see him once more each on Voyager and Enterprise. Darlene Carr plays Etishra, the Tenlani ambassador. Darlene is another actor who got an early start and packed in a lot of impressive credits. One of her earlier roles was a voice in Disney's The Jungle Book, and after that, she appears in loads of guest star TV roles, Simon & Simon, Magnum P.I., and V. She was a regular on James Garner's short-lived series, Brett Maverick. And interestingly, she wasn't on camera, but she was hired as an additional child singing voice for the Von Trapp kids in The Sound of Music. Finally, Sharat, the Kaluran ambassador, is played by Peter White, his career starts in the 50s with some small roles, mostly TV, through the 70s. In the 80s, though, he really starts to work a lot more consistently in front of the camera, everything from recurring stints on Dallas and the Colbys to guest turns on the Jeffersons, Heart to Heart, L.A. Law. Feature roles have him turning up in roles of authority primarily, just as he does in Armageddon, Dave, and 13 Days. So, the gentleman who plays the Kelleran ambassador was in Armageddon. An Armageddon game? Word of advice. Stay far away from him. Prologue. Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien are in a ship orbiting Talani 3. They've been there for a week, trying to help the Talani and the Kellerans destroy their stockpile of harvesters, deadly biological gene disruptors used by both sides in their centuries-long war. It's tiring work. O'Brien's chugging coffee like it's going out of style, while Julian's getting frustrated. He's tried 374 ways to destroy the harvesters. Of course, it's always the last thing you try. Attempt 375, a Muon Ray treatment, does the trick. Harvesters destroyed. It's congratulations all around, and good news to report from Kelleran Ambassador Sherat. Of course, there's more to do. All records of how to build a harvester have been destroyed, but they've only eliminated one canister. Now the tedious work of destroying canister after canister after who knows how many canisters in the stockpile. Act 1. Bashir and O'Brien report the good news via subspace to Commander Sisko on Deep Space Nine, but he's already heard. O'Brien's stoked to get home, though Bashir's a bit bummed. The Talani and the Kelleran are holding a celebration on Talani Prime. Julian really wants to go, and Sisko thinks it would be a good idea. Reluctantly, O'Brien relents. Another day won't kill him. While the ship was full of canisters of harvesters, the doctor, the engineer, and the assembled scientists have made short work of them, just in time for a few Kelleran assassins to make short work of them. They come in, guns blazing, and nearly get the Federation folks as well. Bashir and O'Brien overpower them, though. And I'm sure that drop of harvester goo that landed on O'Brien's arm during the fight is nothing to worry about. Bashir and O'Brien try to beam back to their shuttle, but communication to the runabout is blocked. 
Instead, they'll have to beam down to war-torn Talani 3. Act 2. Back on DS9. Talani and Kelleran ambassadors are here, with bad news about Bashir and O'Brien. They're dead. Total accident on the part of O'Brien. Not his fault, really. He accidentally triggered a security device buried deep in the Talani computer system. A lethal pulse of radiation killed the Federation officers and some of the best scientists from the Talani and Kelleran cultures. Here, we have video proof. No hard feelings, by the way. We don't blame O'Brien. Without him and Bashir, we never could have destroyed the Harvesters. On Talani 3, O'Brien and Bashir are cooking up a plan. Sit and wait. If they move around on the planet, the treacherous Kellerans might spot them. They'll hole up, eat military rations, work on that abandoned communications device to try to contact the Talani, and sit tight, waiting either for the Talani or whomever Cisco sends to find them. Because they don't know that he thinks that they're dead. Especially after watching the video of Bashir, O'Brien, and the formerly warring scientist being zapped by the security device O'Brien accidentally triggered. Looks legit to Cisco, Odo, Kira, and Dax. As far as they're concerned, the doctor and the engineer are dead. Cisco starts making arrangements for a new doctor and a new engineer. Back on Talani 3, irritable O'Brien is irritable, while Bashir is disappointed. He'd really hoped to meet some women at the celebration on Talani Prime. Of course, he says Miles wouldn't understand, what with his being married, though Miles points out that there's a slight diagnostic difference between married and dead. He can look, and besides, one day Julian will understand. He'll meet a woman and fall in love. Julian says he did, but it didn't work out. Anyway, marriage doesn't seem fair in the doctor's estimation, Worrying about spouses, worrying about them. A lot of career officers feel that way. I mean, look at what a shambles your marriage is, Chief. That was maybe not the best thing to say. And now irritable O'Brien is even more irritable. Andy's cold. And he shouldn't be cold, it's actually kind of warm. Bashir goes quickly from being a bad human to being a good doctor. He's found the spot where the harvester goo hit Miles and... Oh, turns out he is probably going to die. Act 3. Cisco's gone to tell Keiko the bad news. Her response is measured, like a military wife from movies or TV. Cisco offers her the video recording of the accident. And now, she'd like to be alone. In Quarks, Kira and Dax are talking over Julian. Dax still has his med school diaries, all about his innermost thoughts, his insecurities, his drive to be in Starfleet. Anyway, that's what she hears there about. Though he gave them to her a while ago, she never got around to reading them. Even Quark is feeling the loss. Bashir and O'Brien were good customers. The 57th rule of acquisition tells us that those are as rare as latinum and should be treasured. In Ops, Keiko says she needs to see Cisco. He needs to see the video of O'Brien's last moments again. Something doesn't add up. Miles triggered the security device around 3 in the afternoon, but he was also drinking coffee. Miles never drinks coffee late in the day. It keeps him up at night. She knows her husband. That recording has been altered. 
That's good enough for Cisco. He and Daxel head to Talani 3 a bit early to pick up the runabout used by Miles and Julian and look into any irregularities. If the recording's been altered, Cisco tells Keiko they'll find out why. On Talani 3, O'Brien's not doing great. Julian tells him to take a seat. Miles can walk him through fixing the communications device. Then, they talk about the one that got away for Julian. They were truly in love, and her dad was a hospital administrator. Had they married, he'd have been head of surgery in relatively little time. But that would have killed any career in Starfleet. So Julian said goodbye. And now, time to say hello. The comms panel is showing signs of life. Bashir still can't reach the runabout, though. Miles wants to take a look, but he can't stand. And he can't feel his legs. Act 4. Sisko and Dax have made it to Talani 3. The Talani ambassador was just on her way to Talani Prime for the memorial, but she'd be fine with Sisko having a look at the accident site. While he's doing that, Dax will have a look at the runabout used by Julian and Miles. On the surface, Bashir's finally got the comms device in working order. He sets it to send out a distress signal every couple of minutes, then talks to O'Brien about how he is not going to die, even though he's totally dying. Then, Miles has words on marriage to share with Julian. It's the greatest adventure of them all, he says. It's a tough journey, but it's the best, because you take the journey together. On the Talani ship, Sisko has a lot of questions about the accident and about the video clip he received. Could it have been altered by the Kelleran? The Talani ambassador doesn't think so. After a hundred years of war, they're ready for peace. For peace to hold, the two civilizations have to trust each other. Sisko joins Dax aboard the runabout used by Julian and Miles. She's found something interesting. Someone has erased five seconds from the runabout's computer log. Also, it looks like somebody tried to trigger the runabout's transporter by remote, a full three minutes after the accident on the Talani ship. That's got Sisko and Dax thinking the dead Starfleet officers are still alive. Or were. Back on the surface, good news. The Talani have picked up Bashir's distress signal. Bad news. They show up with Kelleran. Yeah, they both killed the scientists and tried to kill O'Brien and Bashir. It wasn't enough to destroy the harvesters. They had to destroy all knowledge of them and how to make them. Which means killing the Starfleet officers as well. Act 5. The ailing O'Brien has a last request. If he's to die, he'll die on his feet. Standing next to the doctor, O'Brien tells Bashir that it's been an honor serving with him right before both are beamed out by Dax and Sisko. Aboard the runabout, Bashir starts tending to the engineer while telling Sisko and Dax of the combined Talani-Kelleran-Kill-Em-All policy. Hard to tell what's going on outside. An inversion field is silencing sensors for both the runabout and the Talani ship. The runabout makes a break for it, ignoring calls to stop and return O'Brien and Bashir. In what appears to be a desperate move, the runabout actually turns and charges the much larger, much more heavily armed Talani cruiser. One shot, and the small ship is gone. And, hey, that's funny, so's the other runabout. While sensors were down, the four Starfleet officers must have beamed from one to the other. Then, when the Talani and Kelleran were distracted, slipped away. 
back on Deep Space Nine, Bashir wants to thank O'Brien for saying it was an honor to serve with him, and it's an honor for Bashir to serve with O'Brien as well. Thing is, O'Brien is sharing a tender moment with Keiko. With Bashir gone, O'Brien says he'd like a cup of coffee. But you never drink coffee this late in the day, says Keiko. Well, sure I do, says Miles. Mug for the camera. Freeze frame. Or the end. All right, Ken. Yeah. So you and I and and the two or three dozen listeners that we have. <laughs> right. They know that that every week, this is episode 299, so you've had 298 to prepare for this moment, that uh, when we get to this point in the show, after you do the recap, and I've done trivia, and we did our, our, our pithy and oh-so-clever opening, we get to this point, and this is the point where we just have fun. Right. Where we just say kind of whatever popped into our minds when we were watching the show. These are the notes we write down kind of in the moment. And, um, and everything that we say, we say with love because we love Star Trek and, and we love doing this. But, but these are just the funny things that, that pop up. Okay. 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 I, I, I preface it because what I'm going to say right now is that I find the opening of this episode just comedically bad. Just, it's just comedically bad to me. We we don't know these people. Mm-hmm. Bashir and O'Brien are there because they are. You're going to send anybody to people we don't know. Just send Bashir and O'Brien. It's clearly super important. And and it's like if a if an 11 year old had been writing this, is like the dialogue would just be like, well. We completed doing the really hard science. Right. Now the six of us in this room have completely changed the course of history. Huzzah. <laughs> you know, and, and we happen to join them at the very moment that that 375th experiment works. I mean, that that's good. You want to have your drama on the action. You, you want to join them on the day that that one thing happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so bizarre to me. It would have been good for like a nine parter, though, if they had started with, you know, experiment number one. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's interesting what you say, because uh, uh, so I think I've mentioned on this show before, I watch a lot of Mystery Science Theater 3000. There are like mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. probably like 10 episodes that I own okay. and I'll just go back through and watch them occasionally. And one of my favorites is uh, First Spaceship on Venus. Okay. What I really like about watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 is you get two things, right? You get an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and you also get a bad old movie. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this actually read like First Spaceship on Venus to me. A, a movie which I've seen and enjoy greatly because of its badness. Yeah. Well, then, so you know what I'm talking about. Like oh, when, yeah. uh, like when uh, the Jerry Anderson puppet-looking dude is like, <laughs> I know for a fact that we can say that this historical... Yes, you're absolutely right. See, right. here's the thing. We don't really read each other's notes very much. And so I did hope, however, when I was making my notes, notice that you had written comedically bad. Oh, okay. Like, you know, okay. The, the beginning is comedically bad. I didn't want to read why you thought it was comedically bad. Oh, good. Good. So then I wrote, I'm just curious, you know, what part was comedically bad for you? Is it Miles swigging coffee like he's never going to have coffee again <laughs> while he's doing something, you know, important? Yeah. Uh, is it the part where the harvesters, they reminded me of like a display at a Nike store, you know, oh, nice. or something yeah. like that. It was like, a, it was like, it was like tube after tube after tube of racquetballs, you know, that could destroy the planet. <laughs> yes. Well, not the planet, but the people on the planet. I was just yeah. curious, you know, what it was that, that, that did that. Or... Mm-hmm. Could it be the hair? Now, I think, I think I know 
what the Talani and the Kellerin were fighting about. Okay, okay, go ahead. While they both like hairdos, the Talani go for a seriously pointy do, while yeah. the Kellerin are more into like the you know the curvy sort of bubbly look. It's like a it's like a Janice Rand meets the Lunch Lady. <laughs> right. <laughs> which which by the way that is Haircut One Hundred. Oh, nice. It, I see. We never knew. We never knew exactly what Haircut 100 was. And there is your 80s band reference for all of you who are keeping score at home. <laughs> for this segment. Yeah. Now, look, I, I, okay. And I'm not saying this as a slight to the hair and makeup team. Own on it. DS9. Own it and go. Just own it and go. Okay. Look, it, this episode was nominated for an Emmy Award for the hair. Oh, look, they put in the work. Yeah, well, they did. There's clearly a lot of work, but but there, there's there's just a whole wig situation that we have to address here. Um, <laughs> there's a lot happening, and, and I know. So it's interesting. Something that we discuss from time to time in our show is the alien monoculture of Star Trek, um, and, and sometimes uh, that is just more apparent than other times. But literally, every one of these aliens had to commit to the same extreme measures with their hairstyle. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to wonder, is that by government decree? Is it just one person who started it and the others were like, oh, I, you know, I think I'll go with that. And pretty soon then, like the Vulcans and Romulans, they have it easy. Bull cuts all around. They're yeah. set. They are yeah. set. Um, although, interestingly, I thought that the the rather high do that the Kelleran men have, it reminded me of the hats that they wore on original series in A Taste of Armageddon. Hmm. I, mm-hmm. d- I don't remember. Well, they had tall hats, Ken. Well, okay, I believe you. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I believe yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, uh, two things to point out. First of all, uh, we're only seeing members of the military-industrial complex, right? True, yeah. So maybe this is just them, not the rest <laughs> right. of society. Or maybe this is why they're so angry. Maybe this is yeah, why they can oh, spend yeah. 100 years fighting, because, you know, you got to figure, let's say they live on a 24 to 26-hour day, right? They're going to sleep between 6 and 8. Mm-hmm. They're spending at least 9 in the medic- in the uh, in the makeup chair. Yeah, yeah. And, and then that's got to make anybody angry. Yeah, yeah, no time for anything else. And yeah. because they have no time for anything else, they just want to kill everybody. Well, not <laughs> you, because I really like your hair, but God, I hate that guy's hair. <laughs> I'm going to kill him and his earth yeah. tones or, you know, whatever planet we're on, tones. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, that's mm-hmm. it. No, it's bubbly and gray. And otherwise, you're, you're, you're toast or you're, you know, harvest. See, th- this is uh, – wow. See, I didn't think that the <laughs> hairstyle might be the key to this whole episode. It, yeah. it was kind of to reference another TOS episode. It's sort of like Let This Be Your Last Battlefield where <laughs> the, the insanity of them fighting over who's black on one half and white, white on the other half. Here it's the, the tall hair versus the pointy hair. Yeah, it could be. I mean, really, though, so many episodes of Star Trek are are just science fiction retellings of the star-bellied sneeches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Hey, I'm so glad you pointed out, I suppose another day won't kill me. <sighs> Wink to the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't overplay it, but, uh, but it, it was there. It was there. Hey, um, there's, there's a food moment. That I feel like was unfairly cut short because Cisco ordered up Altarian chowder and Utaberry crepes. I really liked the sound of this, and it's a shame we didn't get to see it. So I just had to use the the theater, or rather the kitchen of my imagination, to uh, to come up with what that might be. But then they found a whole box of food when they went to Talani Three. 
Well, they did. And, I, and I, I've talked before on this show about how much I love ration review videos on YouTube. Like, seriously, this is a thing that I think is just great. And um, I was disappointed we didn't get more investigation into that box of rations on Talani 3. That would have been great. That, well, it would have been fine, but you have to forgive Miles. He's a tiny bit sick. He is, but but Julian's okay. Although, now, Miles gave him the warning. He said that the food in there, any supplies, could be booby-trapped. That was kind of him. Hey, I have a question. <laughs> yes? Uh, ballerinas, do they really have exquisite feet? Nope. Okay, just checking, because I thought their, <laughs> their feet were kind of beat to hell because they've been, yeah. you know, jamming them into pointy shoes and really just, you know, I don't want to say mistreating them because, I mean, I haven't done my feet any favors, you know, yeah. I mean, and yeah. my feet have not made me famous. So, <laughs> so it was just weird that he said they have exquisite feet or, you know, maybe, you know, something is in the eye of the something, right? Right, yeah. 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 Maybe they have exquisite feet and Miles could have been like, wow, really? Because I thought they were like calloused and pointy and odd and almost <laughs> broken. And he'd just be like... Yeah, <laughs> it's it, Julian is a man of of many layers. Indeed. Yeah. Hey, uh, it, it had that um, had that security tape been legit, uh, <laughs> and and regardless of whether the tape was legit, it sounds like this is a security system that they know happens. That like they know it's a thing. That is a hell of a security system. That that you get the wrong password. And just plasma explodes, killing everybody in the room. Nobody would forget their iPhone passcodes if it, if an iPhone exploded deadly radiation if you got it wrong. That's true. That's true. It was really helpful, too, that um, Odo had heard of those kinds of weapons. Hasn't right. everybody actually on Deep Space Nine heard of those kinds of weapons, though? Because didn't they accidentally trigger one of those kinds of weapons in Season 1? Mm -hmm. I mean, not the deadly radiation kind, but the kind that's like hidden and nobody knew it was there. And come to think of it, I I understand why they would believe this, because wasn't it O'Brien that uh, that accidentally triggered that one? Yeah, true. True. Yeah. So they'd be like, yeah, I don't even need to see the tape. Yeah, that's just like a thing he does. I know. (laughs) Yeah, we we all know. We all know. It happened here one time. We were all talking weird. I think that was the, was that the episode where we were all talking weird? Oh, no, I can't remember which episode Uh, it was. Exactly. I thought, in all honesty, they did not overplay the scene of uh, Cisco giving the bad news to Keiko. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was played, you know, kind of just right. Um, uh, Keiko has not been my favorite on DS9, uh, but it was a scene that uh, had the opportunity to be overwritten, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. So, uh, pretty nicely done. Here's what I want you to do. Okay. Go back and watch it and bear in mind all of the... Um cologne and perfume ads that were playing in the 90s mm. i think oh, it might yeah. read a bit like that it's not yeah. like it wasn't overplayed it is in fact ridiculously minimalist like mm-hmm. i kind of want somebody like you know the next line to be ego east <laughs> or, or whatever yeah. the other whatever the clones were mm-hmm. um I, I will say it was neat to see keiko doing something mildly botanical this episode right she was yeah. actually holding a plant and doing something with a plant now if my time at Pier 1 has taught me anything, that is a dead plant. Oh. And I believe a seed pod from something oh. that you can buy as like a decoration. <laughs> but it was still kind of neat that they were like, yeah, you know, we should give her something planty. Just, mm-hmm. you know, just, just once. Let's yeah. get one. <laughs> Maybe once a season we'll have her get to do a botany thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very nice of them to do that. Um, another moment that I thought was played just right was Quark's reaction to their supposed deaths. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I know that we knew it was coming, but it was played just right. And, and the line there, the the rule of acquisition fifty seven, because I know you like to point them out. Good customers are as rare as latinum. Treasure them. And uh, you had pointed out before. I forget which episode, but. You know, everybody reacts to something in the way that their character will react. And and Quark in particular, inappropriate, but perfect for him. And it was another one of those moments where, where he is used well in an episode where otherwise he didn't need him. But but you got to get the moment in there. And they, yeah. they use that moment well. It's really interesting, actually. Like, nobody got the week off. Mm-hmm. Well, except for Jake and Nog. Well, uh, Jake and Nog and Rom, yes. But I yeah. mean, as far as like the regulars, you did not need Odo to stand there and say, uh, yes, I've heard of that kind of weapon. But he did. Right. And you did not need uh, Quark there, although it was actually, I, I would say Quark was more useful there because it was, again, him. And I think it was Quark the last time as well. Yeah. It was him, you know, responding in the way that, oh, that it was Quark. It was when he was like, I want to sue. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they were all like, shut up. But that's very much how that's very much how he expresses, you know, his pain. And in this one, when he expresses loss, he's still doing it through the lens he does it through. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I I liked uh, I like that moment as well. For the second time now in DS9, I feel like we're referencing uh, the Uban coffee commercial (laughs) from the 1970s. Jim never has a second cup of coffee. Wouldn't it have been great, actually, at the end if she had been like, you never drink coffee this late in the days. Well, not yours. Oh, oh, ouch, right, ouch, honey. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I never drink coffee, but I'm turning over a new leaf. I nearly died. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a nice bait and switch moment with the action at the end with, with switching the, uh, uh, the, the shuttle, the runabout going to the other one. It was a good bit of, uh, uh dramatic action. And then I, I thought actually a, a genuinely, uh, nice comedic moment at the end that, that as you pointed out in the recap was just, uh, just a hair short of a freeze frame. Had this been TOS, you end on the freeze frame and the slap on the back. I said you should stay away from the man who was in both Armageddon and Armageddon game. What I failed to consider, he apparently survived both. Maybe we should stick close to him. Time in the Armageddon game. We'll get back to the action in a moment, but first. But first, a word from Eagle Moss, the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. Hey, who's Armada? Your Armada. Oh, oh, hey, Armada. That sounds like a lot of ships. But you could have a lot of ships coming your way. Excellent ships, too. Officially authorized by CBS Studios. Made from quality, weighty, solid material. Diecast metal. I mean, seriously, you get one of these ships in your hand, and and the weight, the heft, it's absolutely surprising, and quite pleasing as well. These are based on the CG models used in the production of Star Trek Discovery because, oh yeah, this is the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. Now, we're talking about big ships like the USS Shinjo NCC-1227. That one is nearly eight inches from front to back. Of course, it comes with a display base, and it comes with the collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of the technology used on board. Funny that John would bring up the Shenzo, because that's actually the first one that you get. It's available to subscribers for only $9.95 with free shipping. You can find out more at eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. 
Now, it doesn't stop there. Additional models will follow, including the iconic USS Discovery, the Europa, the new Vulcan cruiser, the Solcar class. And then you have the new Klingon ships like the Koch class destroyer. That was for you, Ken. And the reimagined Klingon bird of prey. New ships will arrive monthly at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. Now, subscribers are also entitled to free gifts worth over $100, and you can cancel your subscription at any time. Full details can be found at eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. Now, if you're somebody who doesn't want to do the subscription thing, if you want to pick and choose the ships that are just right for you, you can do that either online at shop.eaglemoss.com or head to your local comic book shop. You'll be picking them up at both of those places for the regular price of $54.95 each. But again, if you'd like to subscribe, go to eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. All right, Ken, Armageddon game. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the central pieces of this episode would be the uh, the, the O'Brien-Bashir bromance, mm-hmm. which, uh, which I believe got teased in the storyteller. Uh, that one where they're fighting a cloud monster in a little Bajoran village. Yeah. You're never going to let that village forget that, are you? Never. Yeah. Never. Honestly, I got more bromance because I, the bromance wasn't really teased in that one. The bromance was mentioned to us by everybody who has watched Deep Space Nine a million times <laughs> and wanted us to know that they were going to get much closer. Honestly, the place where the bromance happened uh, was in The Rivals. That was the first time I really saw, or with Rivals, excuse me, that was the first time mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. saw it, because they were, like, hating each other, but they kept going back for more, and then they're put in this, like, weird situation where they kind of have to do this thing for the for the orphans of Bajor or something, mm-hmm. but then it's, it's when they turn off the camera and they actually start working together, that was the first yeah. time I felt friendship, that was the first time I felt anything that might even approach a bromance uh, from these characters. Um Today, I actually feel like we're back to the storyteller. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, the, the level of misunderstanding between them and stuff. Well, no, go uh-huh. ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. I mean, I, I, I felt uh, even before being told that this was something that's coming, I, even in the storyteller, I felt it, it was that sort of, um, I, I don't know, I, I felt that they had chemistry. Really? And, and, I, and I felt, yeah, 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 All for right. real. You know, I mean, maybe this is being pitted against something completely ridiculous, but, you know, <laughs> maybe hey, that's clouds it. are scary, dude. Clouds can be, They're especially terrifying. because that one actually could kill people. I don't know if it you could. remember. It, yes, it could. Granted, yeah. it was built by people, but it is a killer cloud if you, <laughs> if you come right down to it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to, like, dampen your enjoyment of the episode. I don't want to dampen anything you see in their relationship. Honestly, I want you to point out to me where we get something that feels anything like real. I feel like it's because we know this is coming that we're like, mm-hmm. oh, well, this is where their bromance is. Well, it's like I said a moment ago, uh, Julian's misunderstanding about everything where Miles is concerned, right? <laughs> he's not wrong about their marriage, actually, but we can talk about that later. I think sure. he's wrong. I think he's supposed to be wrong about their marriage, but everything that we've seen written about their marriage so far, Keiko and Miles, that is, everything we've seen written about their marriage so far, you and I have both agreed, has really just seemed like a ghastly relationship, right? 
But I mean, there's, there's so much other stuff like, you know, I love when people tell me all you have to do is X, you know, where X equals something about which the person telling me that knows nothing. <laughs> I'll give you an example. After okay. over 20 years of working professionally in audio production, I mm-hmm. can't count the number of times I've been told by somebody who doesn't know one end of an audio editor from another, all you have to do is X, where X equals they don't know what they're talking about. Right. <laughs> right? right. They don't know how right. long it takes. They don't know what's involved. They don't know. I mean, basically, because I do it, they must think, well, I, I guess it's just something that they could just do. And so all they have to do is that. Right. So mm-hmm. I kind of felt mm-hmm. for Miles when Julian was like, oh, let me help. I took an extension course that might make me <laughs> underfoot uh, for a chief engineer helpful, which is sort of like, yeah. I mean, felt like a felt like a, you know, I know more than you do kind of thing. What Julian thinks he knows about career officers, what Julian thinks he knows about marriage, what Julian thinks he knows about Chief O'Brien. And then, you know, since there's so much emphasis on the human parts of this, while we're at it, what Keiko thinks that she knows about Chief O'Brien, what we learn about Julian and Dax, um, you know, read my journals, seriously, and then maybe you'll like me and maybe you'll go out with me, even though you have told me in no uncertain terms that that's not a thing that's going to happen. There's like, I mean, I, and I forgive me because I know I've now moved away from the Julian Miles thing, but it's like 60% of this episode is supposed to be the human stuff or the relationship stuff. And I just never mm-hmm. felt the relationship stuff from anybody. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the rest of mm-hmm. it is the, you know, the warring faction stuff. Um, well, not the warring faction stuff, but the, you know, we, we have to get rid of all knowledge of any of this stuff, which, which to me is the meatier part of it. The rest of it's just like, oh, good. Julian was in love with somebody one time. In fairness, as much as we've seen him talk about women and, you know, oh yes, so she and her and them and all that, the fact that he does prize his Starfleet career above all was an interesting thing to learn about him. Sure. But we're told it a lot. We haven't seen it a lot. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff in here that we're told, and and that's part of it. It's a little bit of clunkiness and revealing all of the stuff. I mean, uh, uh, congratulations. You painted a very clear picture of uh, Julian's cluelessness about so much. Yeah. And, and I'd even just sort of put the thing about the journals out of my head, because every time I watched the episode, I, we would get to that scene, and I would just think to myself, this is weird. And I, I almost don't know what to make of it. So I'm just going to leave that alone mm-hmm. <laughs> before I decide to come back and do anything about it. But I, I never wanted to do anything about it. But yeah, he, he's just <laughs> awkward and, and clueless about so much, uh, yet very earnest and eager about so much where, where he doesn't belong. Yeah, here's the thing. I don't hate him. That's the thing. No, 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 I mean, not, not at all. He's he's not a hateable guy. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not a woman either, though. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, as a guy, I'm just like, uh, God, yeah. dude, you're you're way too much. You're way too eager. I've never had to deal with a guy like him. You know, if I did, I may I may have a different feeling about him. I don't really know, but I don't hate him. But I didn't I didn't see any of the. Um, I didn't see any of the affability that I think I'm supposed to see or any of the relationship between Miles and Julian, especially because at the end, he's Miles is just like, yeah, hey, leave. Yeah, right. But but here's the thing, you know, that's 
they're setting these guys up. And I know that, yes, it's all stuff that is to come. But I also feel like we're getting a bit of that. Where, For me, anyway, we're getting a, a believable bit of that. Their differences are very much on point. You know, uh, O'Brien is the seasoned professional. And yes, Julian is great at his job. But he's this like, uh, like, like this eager puppy almost, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and trying to get the affection and approval of everyone around him, not just the women around him that he won't leave alone, but a guy like, uh, Miles as well. Um, so yeah, we're, we're painting them as very different types, but they keep getting into situations where there is a bond that is, that is, uh, emergent. One of the things I didn't like about that end scene was actually telling us again uh, telling rather than showing uh by having julian actually say the lines oh well you know what they say about people who face death together that they have this you know immutable bond and blah blah it that it, it's partly the character right who is awkward by saying something like that but it's also as an audience uh member watching that it's weird because it is telling rather than showing. Here's here's the thing, though. He wasn't saying that to O'Brien. He was, um, this is not a term that we had in 93, but he was mansplaining it to Keiko. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, which again 100%. makes it sort of like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Picking up on the fact that Miles wanted to be alone with his wife might have been a good thing. Honestly, if we could have ended it without that last scene in Sick Bay, if we could have ended it just like a long shot on DS9, I think I would probably mm-hmm. like the episode a lot more. But I'm skipping ahead a tiny bit. I apologize. No, 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 no. That that that's fine. It's a teaser for for what is to come. Um <laughs> if we remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh let's talk a little bit about some of the other stuff here, and particularly that 40% that is meatier and uh and more interesting, more to the heart of the episode here. Mm-hmm. Um First of all, I will just say that it, it is strange how it's usually only in shows where we know someone isn't dead that we get the full weight uh, uh, from the captain or, or whomever else is dealing with that death. You know, we we stop and have a funeral for Spock, uh, even though the movie-going audience seeing The Wrath of Khan for the first time was pretty sure that Spock was dead and we didn't know if he was coming back. But, you know, the people making the movie and shortly thereafter, we knew that Spock was coming back. We knew that at the time, okay, we, we have to write a backdoor into this so we can get Spock to come back. We we don't stop and, and have moments, really, uh, unless it's for a character that we're, we're pretty sure is on the way back. Tasha Yar uh, is an exception to that because we were pretty sure that Tasha was just gone, done. That was it. So we actually take the time to have a memorial service for her on the show. That was uh, that was kind of a neat thing. House actually did a really good job of that. When Cal mm. Penn left House to go work for the Obama administration, I mean they they had to write him off, and it mm. wasn't gonna it wasn't an I'll see you later thing. Um, his character actually killed himself, and there mm. was a, an episode or two where House was you know doing House. You know, there must be an underlying reason. There must be a this, there must be a that. And they chased down all this medical stuff. And finally, one of the other interns is like, no, you missed it. And he's gone. And honestly, it's, it was it was an incredibly moving, incredibly, um, you know, 
a heartbreaking kind of thing. Generally speaking, you're right. Generally speaking, you're a hero. Then again, the house was almost an anti-hero. So, well, sure. Stay tuned for our house podcast coming up in 2175. <laughs> All right. So big ideas here, big themes. Um, I, I, you know, there's part of a, a question here. Can, can we wrap our heads around? I, sympathize might be the wrong word, but can we wrap our heads around the idea, uh, 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 the mission that the fanatical Tilani and Kellerans have have tasked themselves with? So let's set the stage here. They've nearly destroyed each other. They worked for peace and somehow achieved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they never want to slip back into their war again. But one of the conditions of this is to get rid of all traces of that horrific weapon. Now, the harvester weapon did not cause their war, though. Right. It, it, it was just the tool. That, and the, that tool could have been anything. Could have been, could have been clubs. Could have been guns. Could have been nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Could have been anything. So... Is the peace truly earned if you have to cheat your way to it? Like, I'm trying to understand everything that led up to the moment of them saying, well, now we have to get rid of the weapons. Because at some point they had to put the weapons down Mm -hmm. to then have the conversation to say, now we have to actually get rid of the weapons. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting rid of the weapons. It's getting rid of all knowledge of the weapons, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, because getting rid of the weapons makes, you know, makes sense. Um, swords to plowshares and that kind of thing, or just, you know, getting rid of it because it could still fall into the wrong hands or whatever. Where I think you, where, you, where I think you go a step maybe too far is where you kill anybody who knows anything about it. I, I would say that that is a step too far. <laughs> yeah. It might yeah. be. Yeah. The, the problem here reminds me of an article that I really love from Cracked. I don't know if you read that site or not, um, but they, they did an article that I've referred to a couple of times. Uh, it's a few years old at this point. It's called Five Popular Beliefs That Are Holding Humanity Back. And there's one in there that I, I think it's actually applied to a lot of Star Trek episodes, but it, it definitely applies to the, uh, uh, the Kelleran and Talani dilemma here. So one of the points in that episode is that something holding the human race back is that we think that evil is something we can kill. So we just have to kill the right things, mm-hmm. uh, the, the right people, and then we'll be okay. Uh, the, the problem is, though, if that were the case, well, we would have been done with evil a long time ago. I mean, in, in the history of humanity, all, all that evil that cropped up, well, we had multiple generations of ancestors who were there to kill that thing that was evil, and they just got rid of the evil because that evil is just a thing out there somewhere else that you can, as they say, throw enough bullets at, and then you're you're done with it. So the, the Talani and the Kellerans are suffering under that same delusion. They don't get it that that peace is something that they have to do and they have to do constantly and they have to accept and embrace they just sort of think it's the absence of the tools that make a particular kind of war that 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 then is their peace armageddon game move the pieces around the board try to destroy the thing destroying everybody but do not get too smart or you will get stuck in harvester swamp 
Armageddon Game, new, from Parker Posey. I mean, new, from Milton Berle. Well, it is from one of them. Ken, do not pass go, do not collect $200. You have arrived at the end of the Armageddon game. Now, as we teased, you had your final thoughts to share with us. So I'm going to ask you, as we do in the tradition of our show, does this episode hold up? Then we're going to get to the morals, meanings, and messages. So uh, so what do you think about the show holding up? Uh, no. No question mark? No question mark. Okay. You know, it's it's at times like this that I want to remind people of, of episodes of Deep Space Nine that I have thoroughly enjoyed or appreciated. Okay. I did not enjoy In the Hands of the Prophets, but I really appreciated In the Hands of the Prophets. Had some amazing, you know, acting, had some amazing uh, story ideas. There was mm-hmm. lots there to like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think two or maybe even three of the three-part open of season two I enjoyed. Well, liked, appreciated, whatever you want to say. Duet, oh, a huge fan of amazing. duet, and you know, and the list does go on. I don't know if I could actually say it goes on and on at this point, but it goes on. I, I'm willing to say that. Yeah, I bring all that up because I don't like this episode. Okay. There was so much emphasis on the emotional parts, and they were all terrible. And and the thing is, I said earlier that I wish that this episode had ended just with the long shot of Deep Space Nine. We know they've gotten back. There are so many ways the end of this episode could have been fantastic. If we just see, like, like, like Bashir's about to go in to be all, oh, you know, I want to tell. Even if he had told Dax, like, I'm, I'm going to go in and talk to my friend Miles now. And Dax would just, like, put a hand on his shoulder or something to stop him so that he could see their, you know, their level of whatever. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been so full of derp. Mm-hmm. And then really, really what kills me and it's interesting to me that you like the comedic moment at the end because it undoes the episode for me. It says that everything that we have always said about Miles and Keiko has been absolutely true. Their marriage is terrible. They do not know each other at all. The only way they're saved is because Keiko goes in and says, I know my husband, something has gone wrong. And at the end, they go for the laugh. They yeah. go for the cheap laugh. And so all of this becomes like a, like a comedy of errors, at that point, right? As opposed to actually knowing the people you're around, knowing the people that you're involved with, and and sticking to your proverbial guns could save the day. If 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 Cisco had been like, that's that's a pretty thin supposition, Keiko, that he can't possibly drink coffee in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and she then says, "I know my husband," right? But then at the end, oh, you know what's funny? She doesn't know her husband. It's just, I mean, it's it's all, it's it's, it's just, it's like Jenga. And, and somebody just like pulled the bottom one down because that would be funny to watch the whole thing fall over. The only problem is then the whole thing falls over. It's like the end of an episode of Andy Griffith or Murder, She Wrote. I mean, it's a bad TV ending. Um, additionally, there's no indication that anybody learned anything in this episode. I mean, the, the Talani and the Kellerans stopped fighting, but they did that before we got here. And we don't know if they learned anything about trying to stifle knowledge, trying to eradicate history, because when we leave, you know, we leave. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? Never to be seen again. Yeah, so we don't know what's going to happen there. Um, Would have been better, honestly, if they'd been in the Gamma Quadrant, 
because really they should not be allowed to continue at this point. Yeah, I, I'd kind of hope that they were. Yeah. Somebody should put like cones around, right. oh, Talani Prime, Talani 3, uh-huh. all the Talanis. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many there are. I'm assuming there are at least, you know, four or three. Cause at, at least Prime, three. Yeah. Well, yeah, because because then is it Talani Prime and then Talani one two three or is it, uh, I'm sorry, is it one two three Prime or is it one two? <clears throat> anyway, I, it didn't hold up. Yeah, it didn't hold up as far as I'm concerned. But what about you, sir? Well, see, here's the thing. I I, I felt like this was pretty classically Star Trek for better or for worse. You know, you you got action, you got aliens. You got, for me, some decent character work and you got some messages. You, you got you grappling with some some big ideas. Right. Um, that said, I, I see where you're coming from here, because th- there's something that is very conventionally TV about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you just went through a, a list of some shows like, like Andy Griffith and Murder, She Wrote, that that you would hope that that this is not that, that it's not going to take that kind of easy way out. And, and then as you point out, undermine what was established in the episode. So I, I, I think that, you know, there have been plenty of episodes of Star Trek that do that though, that are kind of conventionally TV again, for better or for worse. And, and we expect things better out of Star Trek, certainly because we've gone through 298 others at this point. Um, but at the end of the day, at the end of watching this episode, uh, there, there wasn't anything about it that just made me absolutely cringe. Even that, comedic moment at the end i felt like okay it it's fine it it wasn't it didn't for me it didn't feel necessarily in place or out of place they were a step away from doing the laugh track Mm -hmm. um i i get why you hate it i really do (laughs) (laughs) i really do see Um, because because here's the thing, forgive me, and I'm not trying to get you to hate it, but I'm thinking back on like, we talked a lot of times about how, you know, there was the freeze frame or the slap on the back or whatever at the end of an episode of TOS. Mm. I don't think they ever actually did freeze frame, but it felt so much like it that they might as well have. Well, there was only one, there was only one in TOS, but okay. then it felt like it in so many other places. So, yeah. But it was 1960 something, yeah. you know? Yeah. And and so while we maybe don't forgive Kirk for being a sexist or we don't necessarily forgive, you know, Kirk for destroying every civilization he came across that didn't quite match his idea of civilization, mm-hmm. we do sort of forgive some of the TV tropes. But here's the thing. Deep Space Nine came after L.A. Law. Deep Space Nine came after Hill Street Blues. Yeah. Deep Space Nine came after... <sighs> television drama that broke a lot of molds. Barnaby Jones might end with the slap on the back, right? Yeah. Canon might end with the slap on the back. Um, Matlock might even, although you're getting to a point there where it shouldn't. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's, again, it's Andy Griffith and you're, you're programming the 70 to dead at that point. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of get why you want to give people that kind of television. Deep Space Nine is this gritty, you know, whatever, more realistic, all the things that people keep telling us. But then they go with this total TV trope ending when what we could have had was growth. Yeah. That, that, that gets, you know, that's as dead as one of those plants that Keiko's, you know, botanying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but see, I, I, I just say at the end of this, I think it's fine. I don't think it's a horrible misfire. I don't think it's something that, uh, uh, look, nobody screamed Alan Moraine. 
at any point. Um, mm. it, which even then, even move along <laughs> home, I've heard people defend to me and, and I go, yeah, okay. I, I get then why you like that episode, you know? Um, but uh, this one I felt like was fine. Um, to the, to the extent that I will say that it holds up. Uh, but I think it was more interesting here is that again, here was a, here was a topic. Here was an idea that, that Star Trek got to, to grapple with for a little bit, even if that was less the emphasis than the character stuff. I still had it at the end of the day. Did you, uh, did you find messages, morals, meanings that, uh, that you like to chew on in this one? Well, I mean, there were things to consider, but I don't know that there was actually, I mean, this again goes back to conversation that we've had quite a bit during our watching of Deep Space Nine. They're not crafting messages. That is not to say that there's not something here to think about, but they're not crafting messages. And because I'll bet, look, there are people today who think that you do not teach sex ed in school because that'll give people ideas. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so then they don't. And then it turns out people have ideas anyway. These guys saying, Oh, we're going to get rid of, you know, all knowledge of how to make this weapon and that's going to make peace everlasting. Well, no, it's just going to make it harder to kill next time. But if somebody really wants to, they're going to anyway. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, erasing the knowledge, you could say that that's a message, except that's not a message because the Kelleran don't learn it. The Talani don't learn it. And we already know it. I mean, as the Federation, as Starfleet. So, I, is there a message? I mean, I guess there's something to sort of chew on there. But if you don't have anybody saying, you see, Timmy, then are you delivering a message or are you just giving people things to think about? So, well, if you're asking if there are things to think about, sure, maybe don't eradicate knowledge, even if it's not knowledge that you agree with or like, even if you're afraid it's going to be misused at some point. Um you know, trying to get rid of it is not not necessarily the way. Is that a message? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a message, and and you hope, you think that that we, and when I say we, I mean we as the savvy TV viewing audience that we are, but also we who are represented by Starfleet in in these shows would already know that. But there's also the we that uh, are are on display in the worst aspects of the alien races that we come across in Star Trek. So uh, sometimes those messages are worth repeating. So going along those same lines, yeah, you, you can't kill an idea. You can kill a person who has an idea or has knowledge of an idea, but ultimately that doesn't kill that idea. Um, what's more important for the Kellerans and the Talani to learn is that the idea exists is what you do with it that is up to you um and in their case peace the their supposed desire for peace that is a thing that they must do it's not just a moment that you land at when you've killed all the things that you think uh would would take you away from there do you feel like that was on screen uh, I feel like it is a topic explored enough in the episode that you and I just got to have a, you know, a nearly hour long conversation about it. <laughs> Hopefully there are other people who watched this episode who got that too, or maybe they got something entirely different. Maybe they just got, uh, you know, don't drink coffee after three o'clock. Mission log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Hey, you know what would be great? 
if you check out the other shows on the podcast network that is the Roddenberry Podcast Network. And may I just say, Podcast Network Roddenberry. Actually, what I should say is podcast.roddenberry.com. Uh, if you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that would be fantastic. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Whispers. Now do it like this. Whispers. <laughs> whispers. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Say what you want to about Armageddon Game. The rules are easier to understand than Dabo. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.